Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Marcus De Silva, and I am pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. David Landsberg. In this podcast, we discuss his career in the medical field, in particular, his work in nephrology in establishing the renal transplant program at St. Paul's Hospital located in Vancouver, Canada. In similar fashion to my podcast with previous guests, we briefly discuss his upbringing and childhood and discuss his professional career starting in university with an emphasis on the personal and professional relationships that he has made over the years and the impact that said relationships have had on his life. We also discuss the ethics of organ donation and how the public opinion and cultural norms surrounding organ donation have evolved over the past few decades. I really enjoyed speaking with Dr. Landsberg, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. This was also his first ever podcast appearance, which I'm always very honored uh, to be a part of that. So thank you again to Dr. Landsberg. Lastly, there will be some announcements about the podcast and updates about my world record training for seven pull-up and chin-up world records uh, in the upcoming two to three weeks. So stay tuned for that. Keep checking in on the new episodes. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on, and I am working uh, like an absolute madman to achieve a bunch of different things. And I am very excited to share that journey with you all in due time. To support the podcast, subscribe, leave a rating, write a review, tell a friend about the show, uh, but most importantly, just enjoy it. So thank you very much, and on to the episode. into the organ donation, we'll get into the details of that and the ethics around that and how that's changed um, or if it hasn't changed over the course of your career. Um, but let's kind of start more from the beginning and just tell us like where you grew up and uh, we'll get into the university a little bit. And I, I have university questions too. So of course. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I was born in 1953. And I grew up in Toronto, um, right smack dab in the mi middle of Toronto. And uh, I went to, uh, I lived in the same house the entire, uh, the entire time that I was uh, from, from uh, childhood. And uh, two years ago, uh, my dad passed away in the same house that I was, that, that I, that I, that I grew up in. So, um, you know, life was very consistent, uh, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, we were middle class, but, you know, like my parents were able to give us a lot. Uh, we had a good family. Uh, my, my brother and I were very close. Uh, my parents had a great marriage, so I came from a pretty I ideal background. The only uh, the only thing was, and this is, may or may not be relevant because I don't believe it is, but everybody will say <laughs> you're lying to me. I had kidney disease when I was a kid, 
Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and in those days, like I know, so uh, nobody knew anything about it. So uh, I I got hospitalized at the age of eight, and I was in the hospital I think for three months, and they had me on complete bed rest. I wasn't even allowed to get out of the bed, and uh, parents were allowed to visit for one hour, and. Uh, and in retrospect, knowing what I know uh, now, I, today I would I, I would be going to I would have been going to school. Okay. I, I wouldn't. I, there, would be, there was no reason to put me in the hospital. <laughs> no reason to make me stay in bed. None, 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 all of that was completely bogus. Okay. And so, but then, uh, and it was so early that they didn't even have a good know what the right treatment for what I had was, but I got, I, I ended up getting treated with prednisone and prednisone's, oh. a, you know, com, uh, anyway, and I was on prednisone for every time I stopped it, it relapsed. And so oh. I had to get hospitalized once again for, uh, for a, like a prolonged period of time after a relapse. And then I was on prednisone for about 10 years. Wow. Uh, from the age of eight to 18. And then, luckily, I sort of grew out of it. Like that, 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 that this disease in kids sometimes uh, doesn't carry forward into adulthood, and so I was very lucky. But I took prednisone for ten years, and uh, that's a strong drug. I hated the drug, and that has some uh, relevance in uh, because that's one of the major drugs we use for kidney transplants. And uh, because of my entire because of my personal experience, uh, we developed a protocol where, for many patients, we don't use it. And I'm positive that the only the, the my strongest motivation was uh, uh, p personal experience. But uh, where I was saying is that relevant or not? Is you know so did I go into nephrology because I had kidney? <laughs> so I believe that I did not. I believe that I only went into I went into nephrology because I wanted to do kidney transplants and to look after kidney transplant people, not because I wanted to be a kidney doctor. Uh, uh, but who knows? Right. Who knows? Cause and effect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and is that so? That's uh, my childhood. Uh, right. Uh, like a very happy childhood, great childhood, except for. Uh, that, that illness, which I, you know, I think did, you know, scar me a bit. At eight, too. Yeah. That's kind of tough. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. yeah. Is that uh, is that an autoimmune disease? Probably. Okay. Yeah. And it, yeah, interesting. So you just kind of, yeah, like you sort of grew out of it and yeah. then, yeah. and then have been okay. Sorry. And it's since then I've been fine. Yeah. 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 Okay. Very yeah. interesting then. Yeah. 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 Crazy. And so uh, you must have done. You must have had a pretty good academic uh, high school career, or somewhat yeah, good so, enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, I did very well in uh, in school. Yeah, and very well. And I was I was crazy. I was crazy. I, I, um, I went to a high school with uh, a, a, a number, like everybody in my my group was very 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 smart and hyper competitive. That must help, uh, or hurt, or hurt, or, 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 <laughs> At or, times. Hurt, or, or, or hurt, and so uh, all of my friends uh, went to medical school. Wow! Uh, 
all of it, everybody got scholarships to go to medical school. Medical school, we all got scholarships to go to university. Like it was crazy how how hyper competitive we were. Like and if I got ninety eight and my friend got ninety nine, I I was actually <laughs> I was actually uh, upset. Yeah. So so yeah. So getting so I just did two years of undergrad because in those days you could get into medical school okay. after after two years. But honestly, I didn't want to be a doctor. Okay. What did you want to be? Uh, I wanted to be a physicist. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and so um, I did, when I applied to university, at first I did, uh, I did uh, like first year undergraduate physics and like at that advanced level. Mm. And because I, you know, because like I thought I was very smart and I could do it. Uh, after two days, I realized, oh my God, I'm in, I'm in way over my head. Like I'm, I'm smart, but these people are geniuses. They were, they, they were on an, another level, and I, I realized there's just no way uh, uh, that that I can do this. Right. So I, so I dropped those things, and I just, and I did regular stuff, and then I said, well, maybe I, you know, maybe, maybe I'll teach. Uh, but all my friends were going to medical school and that's what they all had in their heads. They wanted to, and so, they, so just apply, right? Just apply. Just see what happens. Just yeah. apply. That's yeah. It. You don't have to go just apply. Yeah. So I just applied. And, that's how they get you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and here I am, and here I am now, uh, that many years later, right. uh, I just applied. Once you settled into medicine, did you feel like I made the right choice? So at first I hated it. Okay. Uh, I almost dropped out uh, because it was just memorizing stuff. Interesting. Uh, f first year and a half uh, in those days of undergraduate was just anatomy, histology. Just sure. The, okay. The, like the, there was no no context for disease or uh, or patients or right. or anything. It was just memorization of uh, a huge number of facts and so i you know it's just like but then as soon as i got into the hospital and i started seeing patients and i started uh, you know looking at uh, figuring stuff out and mm -hmm. and understanding a little bit about you know diseases and treatments and how it worked i i was hooked well, so like so the, then I became, oh my God, I love this. Right. And uh, th this is really good. And it, ever since then, I've, I've loved it. But uh, so... It took a while it, to warm up. It was a good, you know, it was a good thing my friends uh, told me to apply and I stuck to it because right. uh, I was on the verge of quitting a lot because I just, yeah. But, but that was a long time ago. It, it, it all worked out. Well, and I guess to the, the practical element of it that is much more dynamic right than the just yes. sit, yeah, sit in the yeah, textbook and yeah, bury yeah, yourself in a yeah, textbook you know, kind of thing like we spent a year dissecting a cadaver and like memorizing where each muscle goes in and, and where the nerve goes and like i don't i'm not sure how that was relevant to 98 percent <laughs> maybe if you're a surgeon right uh yeah. but aside from in uh, aside from that, uh, it has really no relevance in uh, in uh, what I do. I, right. I mean, most of the stuff that I learned in medical school, uh, I have completely
completely forgotten and I, you know, but weren't, wouldn't, wouldn't be relevant in my, my practice today, but you gotta, you know, you gotta go through you it, gotta go through it, but yeah. I'm not sure. I think they, the, the curriculum has changed a lot. Um, and they, um, certainly, uh, problem-based learning and, uh, you know, and being introduced to real medical illnesses, uh, right from the beginning is now, uh, is now the standard whereas, uh, it was totally removed from that for me. Right. And what university was this? U of T. Okay. And so you graduate, you're like 24, 20? I graduated 20... in 77 and I was, yeah, so I just, I was just turned 24. Okay. And then immediately into hospital so, uh, so residency? I did, or? I did a residency and I, I knew that I wanted to, well, I knew that I didn't want to do surgery. Okay. Uh, and I didn't think I wanted to do family practice. And so uh, internal medicine seemed like the logical uh, choice. So I started a residency in, and everybody does general internal medicine before okay. they before they choose a subspecialty, and uh, I did a very early rotation just because that's what I was assigned to uh, in nephrology. Okay, and so it just worked out that way. It then. just yeah. it just worked out that way, and um, it was at a hospital where they had a really good kidney transplant program. And so I spent a month uh, on the kidney transplant service, uh, just as an intern. But um, the staff were, were young, it was very dynamic, and I, I, I was mesmerized by it. I, I loved it. And so they could see that I was interested. And so uh, they encouraged me. I, you know, I, uh, I got positive feedback with, uh, Hey, you know, like they, you they, David, like, you know, like, uh, you know, we think you're good. And so then the next year I did it again as an elective and this is like, this is crazy. They, uh, they really need fellows, which are like, you know, much more senior people, okay. uh, to run, uh, to, especially in Toronto, uh, the, 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 to, to run their program or to make their program function. Um, and the fellows got a lot of responsibility, um, but their fellows didn't show up. Uh, because they're usually uh, foreign, you, you know, maybe may coming from somewhere else, or there was some licensing problem. So they said, they said, "Hey, David, you've been batter uh, up." <laughs> no, no, no. They said, "Well, you know, you've already done this once. Maybe you want to be the acting fellow." So I said, "Oh, okay. What does that mean?" Well. You're on call uh, every other night, <laughs> and uh, and basically you, you get tons of responsibility. <laughs> and I said I'll do it. Right. And so, and I loved it. And the, the, you know, so they they, they trusted me. Uh, I, I got to do stuff that uh, that I wouldn't probably have been able to do. And this is going to be a theme of my career. Actually, I, I just had so many great opportunities. Like stuff just fell in my lap, and so um, at that point I was sold. This is what I want to do for my career. And then I, um, then the next year, after three years, you go into the subspecialty. So after the third year of medicine, I applied for nephrology, and then I did two years of uh, nephrology to 
you know, get certified as a nephrologist. And then I did several more years as a transplant uh, slash research fellow in, in transplantation to improve my, you know, to become a transplant expert. When you first started, were you seeing a lot of uh, transplant procedures or, or did that come a little bit later, like as you said, just a little bit later on in your career? So I'm medical, right? So I don't, you know, so I don't do the surgery. Right, yeah. So, but uh, in Toronto and, you know, in Canada generally, uh, nephrologists uh, do everything except the actual surgery. Right. So we select the patients, we admit the patients, we uh, make sure they're ready to go to the operating room. And as soon as they come out of the operating room, we go and see them and we look after them. Right. So, so that's the model that I learned in Toronto and that's, you know, the model that I eventually brought here. Yeah. So the, yeah. the pre and post yeah. surgery then. Yeah. Right. So it, there was a very good transplant surgeon in Toronto, uh, worked and, uh, all of the, uh, nephrologists were, um, amazed by his skill. Um, I, I, did, I never was one to be able to appreciate surgical skills. So, uh, they said, you know, just go spend some time in the OR with him. So you just understand That's cool. the, the thing. So, I, so, uh, and, uh, yeah, this guy was amazing with his hands. Um, when I came to Vancouver early on, I did a lot of things, which I probably <laughs> should have been doing, but one of them was they didn't have a lot of residents. Oh, okay. Uh, in in uh, in surgery sometimes, and so sometimes in the early days I assisted on the transplants, which was crazy because I, I didn't have very uh, good surgical skills. <laughs> but as well, um, we were very short. Um, there, when an organ is uh, retrieved in the operating room, then. The surgeon is uh, takes out the kidney and then he hands it to someone whose job is to um, to get it cooled down and to you know make sure that it's uh, properly packaged and prepared and put on ice and everything. So I used to do that, um, but in order to do that, you had to um, cannulate the artery. So that means putting a little catheter into the artery and then running cold solution through it. And uh, things have changed now, but the, but the kidney was warm, and so the faster you needed to get it in fast, or right. this, this is what I thought. But my my hand would shake, <laughs> <laughs> so I'd have to actually use my left hand to steady my right hand to stop it from shaking to get into the artery. And oh my God, that was stressful. You gotta, that do, was the most you stressful. gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> So yeah, you, those well, were in the early days. Here. Right, we, we jumped around a lot, but no, no, no. But that's yeah, that's interesting. So you you know you get the the experience, and that's kind of funny too because so I really saw the the whole transplant. That's right. Yeah, uh, thing from the bottom up. Uh huh. And you know, so when I came to Vancouver, uh, there was no transplant program at St. Paul's Hospital. Right. I was thirty years old. Uh, I had. Or 31 years old, I, um, but because I had had all of that experience, 
because you know I was a fellow and I was like a second year resident, mm -hmm. and because I did so many, and then I I had done uh, ex, you know extra training where I was a fellow all the time, and you know I was on call all the time, and I I had outstanding uh, clinicians who taught me. I came with a lot of confidence. Maybe, you, and so I, I, you know, I, I had a lot of confidence that um, I knew what to do. And so it didn't scare me so much to, you know, you know to, to get things going and to make decisions. And, um, and I also knew, you know, knew what it took to set up a transplant program because I had seen it uh, from so many from so many perspectives while I was in Toronto. Well, very much so. Yeah, because you have that frontline experience, and then you also have a little bit of the behind the scenes experience, and then you also sounds like at least somewhat of the academic career also. Yeah, set so you up I was for also in, in a lab, uh, yeah. you know, doing research and. Uh, but I and I was then I was sort of moon I was moonlighting as a fellow at night uh, at nighttime so I, I would be looking after patients at night and doing it in the lab during the day but then the lab uh, interacted with the immunology lab which is very important in uh, right. in, in matching um, but you know there's a lot of aspects to a transplant program but. I think I just had so many years doing it that right. that I really had a good a good handle on what what it took. Mm -hmm. And so then the move to Vancouver, uh, you, did you move out west with the intent that you were going to be in, at St. Paul's? Or so my so my career plan had been to stay in Toronto. Okay. Okay, and. Uh, I had never, it never occurred to me that I was going to leave Toronto. So when you, uh, w w growing up in Toronto... Uh, Toronto is the center of the universe, right? Are, <laughs> and and uh, I believe that. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, all my friends and family reinforced that. <laughs> right. um, but then the trouble was getting, uh, getting a good uh, a, a job doing transplantation. Transplantation okay. was a, is a very young field. Sure. Uh, okay. So the people who were my mentors were only five years older than me. Wow. Okay. Right. right. So Ten years. Well, like, transplant really didn't get started. In, you know, so I graduated from medical school in 77 and transplantation didn't really get going until the midst, you know, like in a big way until sometime in the 70s. That's so, kind of amazing in itself, isn't yeah. it? Like that's not long at all. No, no. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so there were very few openings. Mm -hmm. And so um, they said to me, okay, well, you know, we like you, but we're going to have to convince the <laughs> university to hire you. And although you've done all this research, it would be better if you got some more training. So we want you to go to, and I got a, uh, I got a, um, um, a fellowship to go to the NIH. Uh, National Institute of Health in uh, in the U.S. to do two more years of transplant research. Okay. And they said after you do that, then you'll be good we, to go. Then you'll be good to go. <laughs> but you know, honestly, I didn't want to do that. I didn't really, you know, and it was going to be basic lab research on mice and stuff like that, and, and that wasn't my interest. And uh, but I was going to do it to get a job. Right. Uh, as by coincidence, um, I had a close friend who moved to Vancouver to do a fellowship and he was working at St. Paul's Hospital. 
he befriended some of the nephrologists and they said, you know, we're look he heard that they were looking to start a transplant program. And he said, well, you should talk to my friend David. He's a transplant doctor, uh, but, uh, you know, he's trained, but he's, he, uh, he might be interested. Uh, and so um, um, a man named Angus Ray called me. Angus Ray was my, I have the high, nothing but amazing things to say about Angus. He was like my mentor, my benefactor, uh, my, my supporter, and a visionary, and he, he had a single-minded goal to get a transplant program at St. Paul's Hospital. So he asked me to come for an interview, uh, came up for the interview, and the, despite my age, they really, <laughs> they really liked me. Like, this guy's got something going I, on, yeah. And, 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 and they offered me a job right away uh, to come to St. Paul's to start a transplant program. And despite that being like, oh my God, what an amazing, amazing opportunity. And I'm an avid skier. And I had always said, if there's anywhere else in Canada I would live, <laughs> it would be Vancouver so right. I could ski at Whistler. Yeah. Uh, um, it still took me a long time to decide because of the pressure to stay in Vancouver, in Toronto and everybody telling me I was crazy. And really? Like, okay, yeah. But... But uh, I made the decision to come, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, by far, by far, by far, hands down, the the, the well, besides getting married to uh, my, my wife, my wife <laughs> yeah, Tamara, I have to put that in Tamara, there, yeah. uh, by far, by far, by far, the best decision I uh, I made, and uh, so I came, uh, so I so I came to Vancouver to St. Paul's to start the transplant program. That was that was the career path, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in the process, uh, so that would have been what year? When I came you... in 84. Okay. Uh, and we did not start the transplant program until 86. That's how long it took to, because they, even though they had this vision and then they got, they got approval from the government, there was nothing in place. That doesn't sound like very long. No, no Like two no, years yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. So kind of... So I I had to, we had to put all the pieces in place right. to, to get it going. So we did our first transplant uh, April 86. Wow. Okay. Two years after I came. So the reason that St. Paul's uh, got a transplant program was, and I, I think, uh, nobody at VGH will dispute this, um, is that there was a transplant program at VGH. Okay. And I believe that everybody who was associated with that program would have uh, probably passed away, so nobody is going to take it. <laughs> take gonna take it. It, was, it, it, was a, it was not a good program. Sure. Um, and there were a variety of reasons why it wasn't. It was, yeah, I mean, maybe it was a good Good program, but they did, they did very very few transplants. So the most transplants they ever did was thirty five in a year. At, that seems at very Vancouver. low, right? And so I'm a lay person, but that right. seems very so, low. <laughs> so um, so patients in BC and the patients from St. Paul's, they you know they, they were responsible for a lot you know big dialysis unit. They weren't getting transplanted, and uh, it was because the program had very 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 restrictive. Uh, policies about who could be uh, a recipient, but also who could be a donor. Okay, right. Uh, and they so were, the supply they, they, was they, they, a they concern were, as well. They were very, very, very selective. 
And um, so just to show you how selective they were and how you can turn that around, uh, in the first year, we did our first transplant in April 86. And by the end of that year, we did 50. Okay, yeah, so much higher house. output. Yeah. Yeah. In so, your fr and that's the first year, that's the inaugural year, yeah, year just right? Flat start. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just like, and then the next year we did almost a hundred, um, but, but you know, kidneys from donors from BC are a provincial resource. They're not St. Paul's patients or VGH patients. They go to the patients on the waiting list. There were just very few patients on the waiting list of VGH, and there were actually lots of donors who, uh, there weren't lots, but there were more donors than were being used at the time, um, so that we were able to, to do the, the, you know, the, the, those bigger numbers. But then VGH quickly realized that their program really wasn't that. Right, yeah. And they made a huge shakeup and they recruited new people and their program improved dramatically. And now there were two programs that were, they were, you know, like equal. And then the number of transplants went down because, we, because the number of VGH went up and we were then struggling with, you know, uh, an organ donor shortage actually. Um, okay. Because we still, you know, we still we didn't come close to having the number of donors we needed to uh, meet the need for patients who could benefit from a transplant. VGH had an artificially low list because they were so selective. But once the true demand, yeah. once the true demand became apparent, I mean, there was a big organ donor shortage, and that was the impetus to really push the living donor program um, because our Organ donation rates in BC were low. Right. I'm just gonna turn the heat back on really quickly. Actually, I'll just. Are you okay, temperature-wise? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. I'll just edit that a little bit out. Yeah, actually, now that you mentioned it, it's a little bit cool now. That's the thing that I always sort of forget about organ donation is that it requires a donation of yeah. some sort, whether it be living or deceased, but. I think there's a bit of a tendency where you think, oh, okay, you know, surgical uh, transplantation, like, oh, we have to get this from somewhere. Like, there has to be a supply. Um, so that per that particular shortage that you're speaking of, um, when you say shortage, was that like a provincial thing? Like, So there were, you know, there was variability across the country in terms of the, uh, the rates of organ don't organ donation. Okay. In BC was Canada didn't ha Canada was sort of middle of the road in terms of countries uh, for organ donor rates, and but BC was was low, or maybe even been the worst. Any particular uh, reason for that, or I mean, like yeah. anything, I'm sure is a multitude of reasons, but um, so. There's a lot of arguments about all about you know our geography. Uh, you know, patients would be in you know, die in remote areas where they couldn't uh, get access to organ donation and wouldn't assess for organ donation. But I, I really believe that we just did not have a culture okay. in BC which supported organ donation for a long time. And so organ donation really happens 
in the emergency rooms and in the intensive care units where uh, critically ill people are brought in and then may pass away but may also be in a, in a situation where they could be an organ donor. Uh, and there just did not seem to be a culture in BC where, uh, especially the intensive care unit uh, physicians, um, <coughs> felt comfortable with the concept of organ donation. And oh, there interesting. Were, there okay. were actually some who felt very uncomfortable with it, and so would not necessarily approach families, and uh, or, you know the whole idea of organ donation just didn't come up. Where where was the where did that discomfort generate from? You think? Because um, like you said, like there's a cultural thing that that does sound like for whatever particular reason or reasons that, yeah, they're just that culture. We're just not big on this thing that we just don't think this is either worth pursuing or. So it, it it's a difficult topic. Um, and it's a very interesting I, topic too. <laughs> you know, the, the biggest opposition was from neuro neurosurgeons. From neurosurgeons, neuro, there were a number of neurosurgeons who, uh, when they had a patient who had irreversible brain injury and or brain death, uh, they they thought that keeping the patient um, ventilated and perfused to give the time for their organs to be, you know, successfully retrieved wasn't ethical. Um, they call okay. It, I remember being like. Um, I that seems to, counterintuitive uh, to me. No, I, I think they were. I think they were absolutely wrong. Okay. The, the College of Physicians actually at one point had a hearing on it, uh, and I. So that's pretty serious. And then. I testified, right. you know, why, why, why it wasn't ethical. They they called it a non-therapeutic ventilation. Um, so we're ventilating these people, but there's no point to it because they're actually already dead. But right. Artif yeah, artificially but, keeping yeah. them alive. Right. But they're not alive. They're, That's right. They're, they're dead. Yeah, so they're biologically. Their argument. Yeah. Um, and so um, so I, I think that was, honestly, that was a, I don't know, uh, BC tends to uh, have some, uh, sometimes some, uh, Radical thinking, you, you, you know. Yeah, I know. Like what you not, mean. <laughs> not, 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 qu not quite mainstream thinking, right. uh, yeah. and that that was not that would not conform to the the main, mainstream thought. Um, and m m if if I were to re relate that to one of my colleagues from the East, even they say, "Well, that's crazy. I've never even heard of that argument." Okay. Uh, so, argument, so, so even it was that, specific yeah. to BC. Right, but that's and even Alberta, interesting and Alberta, too. That, actually, that that the time because it's the same time frame, but East Coast says this is ridiculous. Yeah, and West yeah, Coast yeah, is yeah, yeah. So, but that's doing what they're doing. Yeah. So rate was a lot, <laughs> a lot lower. Okay. Then um, and Alberta, uh, and Alberta felt the there, same there, way as BC. There were a few. There was a couple of certain neurosurgeons in BC, in Alberta. I don't know, but there, there, it wasn't as pervasive. But there okay. was, I mean, it wasn't everybody. There was, it wasn't like we weren't doing organ donation, but there was not 
a culture, there was a lot of lack of support for, for donation. Right. Uh, and that changed entirely uh, when uh, our organ donation uh, in BC um, was run through BC Transplant. In BC Transplant, um, mandate was to increase the organ donation rate. Um, but in, initially, BC Transplant took a, an aggressive approach where they basically said uh, that this is your responsibility, you have to do it. And okay, so it's the other way then. There was some, there was some, got some legislation passed to say actually that patients had to be referred if they were, uh, if, if they were, if death was imminent and they could be an organ donor. Um, but there was pushback because doctors don't like to be told you have to do that. Right. And so what changed was um, the head of the organ donation program uh, became, uh, uh, became Greg Grant, who was an intensivist at St. Paul's Hospital. And he was passionate that organ donation was part of end-of-life care uh, and that it was the only morally correct thing to do was to present organ donation as an option to families. And uh, as an intensivist and a colleague of all the people who would be um, approaching uh, fam donor families, uh, he had all the credibility. And so he, I think, you know, single-handedly, I think, through his you know his efforts and uh and it was also older pe you know there there was like the, this whole the school of uh you know you know more senior people had these fixed ideas the the new generation got trained in a different way that organ donation and then greg really brought them on board because he spoke their language he was he was part of them mm -hmm. and so our culture turned around and entirely and our organ donor rate went from the lowest in the country to uh, to the highest in the country and but now we're even higher than that and that's because not only has the culture changed but the number of potential donors has increased dramatically um, because of the opioid crisis do you want to talk about it now or uh, I'm trying to think. Okay, let's. I want to do. Yeah, let's go down the yeah, ethic yeah. Uh, rabbit hole for a touch, and sure. then I have a yeah. note of the opiate yeah. thing as well because that was that was new to me. Um, so, so the the transition was low rates, um, not much buy-in from ICUs. Um, Greg Grant uh, taking over uh, the organ donation uh, arm of BC Transplant. Um, you know, um, putting the investment also in the infrastructure in the intensive care units in the emergency rooms with donor coordinators uh, um, to help support organ donation so a lot of investment in funding for to support the organ donation program mm -hmm. uh, a lot of public education and i think always that must know, have been very you know, critical you know, like so when i say there was a low organ donor rate I do not believe that it was because the people of BC uh, were not supportive. Right. 
I, I believe that it was a, a system problem rather than a... Than yeah, something the, wrong with the... There may have been... <laughs> there's something there, wrong with the people. <laughs> yeah, there may have been, an, there may have been uh, an education problem with the public yeah. as well, but, that, but people in BC in general have always been very supportive of Oregon Donation. Yeah, so. I, I think most people are if the education is adequate yeah. because so like that shift that um, ideological shift uh, proposed by uh, Greg Grant as you mentioned that's I really like that it's pretty elegant when you consider it that this is actually a part of end-of-life care like this is how we need to think of it so that little shift now once you accept that premise then what you have to do is then just as you said now you got to provide the structure to support this ideal so it's it's a it's a subtle it's subtle but also significant yeah it was profound actually yeah, yeah. i mean so then the icu's took ownership yeah. of it rather than oh you guys are telling this and this, yeah. this is this is, <laughs> this is your job this is for your patients no it's 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 for the donor families yeah you're doing this because a tragedy has happened and many families will derive great solstice, uh, solace, uh, uh, rather, uh, and, uh, you know, comfort and in knowing that their loved one, uh, you, you know, actually, you know, save lives mm -hmm. and to deny them that opportunity. And so it has nothing to do with even the recipients. It's, it's, yes. it, it's you know, it's honoring the, the donor and the don't, you know, we've got, we have an awful lot of, uh, donor, uh, registrations signed. And so you're only just honoring or respecting the donor's wishes. The, the, the people signify beforehand that they want to donate and then uh, you give the family the opportunity to, uh, to see this through and uh you know it's, it's just the right thing to do mm -hmm. um and our patients benefit but 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 these the physicians are really doing doing this for their for their own patients and their patients families mm -hmm. and so the, to get that head to get that mindset changed yeah that was the key in my final year of law, I was fortunate enough, I took uh, both medical law courses. So it was medical law one, medical law two. I think it was in the second module where we covered organ donation. That one actually was, that was such an exciting course because geez, you'd show up every week and it was like, we're, we're going right into the deep end. It was like organ donation, abortion, like all the big <laughs> things that people get really emotional about. So it, it made for some very interesting um, conversation. And of course we're coming from a legal perspective. So our, our, the way that we think about it is going to be obviously different than someone uh, in the medical field, how they're going to think about it. Either way, the ethical component of it is critical. And largely that's what the law centers around is these ethical considerations. And so, I mean, geez, some of the cases are so interesting. Like you, you have such an array of, of things going on, but the, the one thing that I didn't fully appreciate 
at the time or before that module at least um, was the emotional the emotional considerations that go into that decision so when you lose somebody and a lot of the time it would be children where parents would cause a real ruckus with not wanting to harvest the organs from their child and so I, I, I understand that a little bit better now because if you think about emotionally there there really aren't I mean, it's also kind of weird to like compare suffering, but when you think about all the bad things that can happen in the world, losing a child is definitely one of the top. Th I mean, that is a devastating thing. And then what would happen in some cases, if perhaps the doctors weren't, maybe if their bedside manner wasn't quite up to par, um, you're then trying to have a conversation with grieving parents about, okay, now we have to harvest your child's organs. It could kind of deal with people who are really on the edge emotionally. And then if you don't have this framework set up, that's why like having a donor card or donor registry ahead of time exactly. so that you don't even have to go down this road of, you know, and when you're emotional like that, you can think of it as, you know, um, it's a disrespectful to the body. Like, you know, there's all these things that people can think of that can arise when you're in this heightened emotional state. Um, but ultimately when you compare the potential to save multiple lives, cause you can harvest many organs when they're now deceased, um, compared to living donation, of course, um, the good that it can do is quite profound. And I think that, yeah, that shift of, you know, you can really, you can have something very beautiful come out of this tragic situation. Um, so yeah, the, the, the law on that was obviously very interesting. And then it, it also got pretty interesting when you talk about like religious considerations as well, um, which I have my own <laughs> opinions on, but ultimately. But you, you know that no, organized religion uh all organized religions uh support organ donation right as they should that but, makes sense but, but oftentimes uh people are uneducated as to what their religion actually teaches right and so i'm jewish and it's a common jewish uh misconception that organ donation is is not allowed Okay. Uh, because one of uh, uh, one of the tenets is that uh, is that uh, the body needs to be buried whole. But there's a trump card in Judaism, which uh, means saving a. Uh, there's a hierarchy of rules, but saving a, a life trumps the uh, trumps that one but, mm -hmm. but a lot of a lot of people just assume that that it's not that it's not a lot that's not so much these days but definitely i gave a number a number of talks in synagogues over the years to uh you know to talk about organ donation and uh so that that's just one example yeah and i remember too uh like when that came up uh, when we were covering that course and so then, then obviously I have that conversation with my parents where I'm like, geez, I should probably, you know, I should probably do this organ registry thing or whatever. And, and we had this conversation where, um, I said, I'm like, you know, if anything ever happened and you refused, 
um, I would be furious at you because yeah. I think that's the wrong, like you're gone. So that's done. And you have this, like I said, you know, there's this opportunity to have, um, this really amazing outcome from an otherwise tragic situation, but that's, that's life. I mean, that's, and there's that, that beauty in that, that you get to help another family, you know, keep someone that they love alive. I mean, doesn't get much better than that. Right. And then of course, when you look at pretty much every religion is all the same in that regard. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, pretty much every religion and every different type of spirituality, it all kind of comes down to the same core tenets. But this this idea that you can help someone else is paramount to yeah. pretty much all those. Yeah. yeah. And that uh, so then that shift, that ideological shift then must have made the organ donation process much easier then. Yeah. And, all, and as well. Easier, let's, at least psychologically, well, I suppose. Yeah. But also, let's face it: the every, you know, there's different levels of skill uh, to approach this, and so one of the big investments was uh, coordinators, and so these are people who are trained to speak to families. So obviously, families are going to need to hear from the doctor about the medical, you know, aspects of that. But once the doctor has confirmed that. The, that this person is, you know, is neurologically deceased, or I should I should also talk about donation after cardiac death. Okay. Um, yeah. It, Let's talk about that too. As, as, as well, uh, once the, the the doctor has, you know, informed the family that uh, that that would be an option, then the the donor coordinators really take over and spend a lot of time with the families and, you know, help them through the process and they're trained to do it. So the emphasis uh, on that. Yeah. They're trained to do that. They're, they're yeah. trained to do that yeah. and they're comfort, you know, then this is what they do and they mm -hmm. see it in, you know, they, they have a passion for it and because they see that they're helping families, although, it, you know, it takes a certain type of person to be able to talk to a family in their time of grief and to talk to them about, something which is 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 really hard um but people you know people in this in this uh, business uh realize you know know, know that the the benefits that can come from that do come from it and are committed to to, to doing that so the so not having some doctor who's been up for uh, <laughs> yeah. you know uh, three nights and you know you know well if he does his best effort but not it's not going to be the same uh, way of talking to a family as it would be if somebody that was their job mm -hmm. so now that that's almost entirely how you know it, it happens and so the donation the donation after cardiac death piece is that prior to about 2010, um, donation was through people who were declared neurologically deceased or brain dead. So uh, brain had ceased to function, no hope, no, no, no recovery, um, no, nothing was happening from 
at the level of the brain, but there are reflexes which keep the heart going and, the, uh, and uh, they're on a ventilator, so the heart is still beating. Um, and the organs are there perfused and then families approached and the, uh, the, the donor is then taken to the OR and the organs are retrieved. <coughs> <coughs> Another situation occurs when independent of organ donation, absolutely independent of organ donation, the intensive care unit or in the emergency room decide that there is no hope here. Um, and it's usually it's a patient on life support, but where because they're not going to recover, with the consent of the family usually, they withdraw life support. Okay, yeah. And so, um, in that situation, with the family's agreement, we withdraw life support in the operating room. And the patient's heart stops, they, are, they die, and then organ donation occurs. And so, um, that's a second pathway to organ donation. And, uh, you know, again, when Greg became head of BC Transplant, he really, and that, that puts a lot of pressure on the intensive care units and the intensive care unit physicians to explain all, you know, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that was something that he was passionate about and really pioneered in BC as well. And so uh, donation after cardiac death and, and uh uh, neurologically deceased donation are the two pathways to organ donation now. So when you look back at your career, especially when you go from uh, starting a program, so, you know, you're working in Ontario and then come out west, start the program, and then you see all these different changes that occur even within the course of your career and all the different people that you've worked with and just how the, the ebb and flow of it all. Um, what's your take on organ donation as you see it now? Do you think it was something that's really come a long way? Are there still um, areas that are in need of improvement or you know, what, what's the so, temperature, temperature gauge on that? So in my career, um, we didn't really talk about that because our organ donation rate was low in BC and because I wasn't in a position to impact it that much um, just because uh, you know I wasn't in the ICUs and uh, uh, I, I you know I, I tried whatever I could do but I didn't have that much impact but what I could impact was living donation Okay, yeah. So I really worked hard to develop a strong living donor program in BC. And uh, we developed, like, we, we definitely developed the, the highest donor, living donor rate in, in the country by, by quite a bit through, uh, through developing, through really pushing, not pushing, but um, not giving, giving, people, <laughs> giving the people the opportunity to live in a nation. We did, all, we did some innovative things like uh, um, 
up until early 2000s, um, there was no such thing as, uh, as altruistic uh, living donation. Really? Yeah. So That's not all, long I mean, altru altruistic. I mean, everybody, <laughs> living donation is an altruism, but donating a kidney to somebody who uh, you don't know. Right. And so um, the contention was that um, nobody in their right mind would, don <laughs> would donate a kidney to a stranger. Uh, we're not allowed to operate on people who aren't in their right mind. Therefore, it's unethical. So, Therefore, it's unethical. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So I interesting conclusion, right? So yeah, I decided okay. to put that to the test. Like, are these people really not in their right mind? <laughs> and so yeah. Let's we, talk to them. Let's find out. Yeah. So we did. So we did. So we did a number of studies, and uh, we uh, one of the papers we published was uh, um, living anonymous donor. That's what we called them. Uh, lunatic or saint? <laughs> and, it's a catchy title. Yeah, and so we uh, we interviewed. Uh, we did a psych in depth psychological interviews of, of of a large number of people who said they would be willing to do it, and uh, we found that not everybody was not everybody was in their right mind. <laughs> well, Funny, you know, you know, like people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there were many, many people who were totally psychologically uh, intact. In fact, you know, just because you you might not just very do, caring people because yeah. you might not do it. There are some people who, who would be willing right. to do it, and uh, the, and they're passionate about it, and they have a history of altruism. It's not. There's lots of altruistic acts which uh, which we reward, and uh, so uh, so with that we got the Living Anonymous, the altruistic program started, and uh, then that took, and we were, the, we were the first ones in the country to do it, and then, uh, and then it got going in the rest of the country as well, and you know, now it's accepted. Right. Uh, but that was a push. That, 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 was a hard, that was a hard struggle, but that's one of the things I'm really proud of, and then I, I really became a very strong advocate for living donation, I became very involved with the uh, Canadian Blood Services, who uh, took a, uh, who uh, run the organ donation system, and I was the chair of the living donation committee for many years, and set standards for living donation. And then we developed the living donor exchange program, where for incompatible pairs, so you want to donate me your kidney, and I need your kidney, but we're incompatible. So you can't donate to me directly, but if we find a, another pair, um, and you could donate to that recipient, and their donor can donate to me, we can do a swap, or we can set up a chain where this person then donates to this person, and so uh, we, we were very instrumental in starting that, in the, and that's been a big success in the country as well. You know what's interesting about that? So earlier when we were talking about the how. So in some cases, it was considered to be unethical, um, the, the donation aspect. I can see how under, like, the old guard or the, the older way of thinking, how even that chain, which I think is brilliant and pretty, that's an, it's an elegant way of doing it where you, you go, okay, well, why don't we just, we're incompatible, so let's just, 
move some pieces around here to ultimately achieve the same goal that we were trying to achieve the whole time. But I could see how that even under that old way of thinking could be considered unethical by that standard. So it's interesting how, you know, at the time, you know, how that shapes your thinking. But now that seems very intuitive and smart to be able to move things around to achieve the best possible outcome for multiple people. Yeah. You're right. I mean, it came down to like the idea of, uh, of valuable consideration. So good term. That yeah. sounds like a legal term. Yeah. No, no, it's a legal thing. And I believe in order to make it uh, absolutely uh, legal in the United States, they had to change some laws uh, ar ar around that because uh, I'm donating you my kidney, um, but in return, um, my, my, my brother is getting a kidney, so maybe I'm sort of bartering my kidney and that might not be, that might not be legal. Yeah. Yeah, so. That's stuff's interesting with yeah. privacy and bodily tissues and all that. Yeah, it's, yeah, the law on that's interesting. Plus in the States, they have their constitution and they get, they get pretty fired up about that. <laughs> <laughs> they should be. That's okay. Right. So, I mean, that. so it sounds like in many ways that you, you've been a part of some very significant changes to the... the oh, well, I mean, you know, it's a f uh, almost a 40 years now. So, like, a lot, a lot, lots of... Lots a packed 40 years just, though. <laughs> I've, just, I've just had, the, like, amazing opportunities to be there and to help... Uh, you know, innovate and do things. Uh, it's been like spectacular. Uh, but, or, you know, what better area than organ donation? What better area than transplantation? Kidney transplant, uh, taking people who are, you know, on dialysis and uh, looking at dialysis for the rest of their life. And, uh, you know, they get a new kidney, they, their, their energy. Oh, it changes yeah, your life yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they, they get back to a living a normal life. And uh, because uh, donors have two kidneys and because living donor, and because of living donation, we could do a lot of kidney transplants. I mean, not as many as we would like, mm -hmm. but still we're doing, we do, we do a lot. And uh, so just being able to see the the outcomes and uh, and for me, best part of my career has actually been forming the relationships that I've had with my patients. Um, because we've been doing it for so long, I have patients who were transplanted 35 years ago, uh, who I still, and once you're a transplant patient, you get followed up for life. So, mm -hmm. I, so I have a longitudinal relationship with these people, which is... Uh, and that's very unique as oh, far as medicine's concerned, too. As far too. as medicine goes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's got to be the best, the best job in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with that dialysis thing, that I, I didn't realize what dialysis... I didn't realize the extent of it. I mean, it's amazing that you can keep people alive with that type of treatment, and that's great, obviously, because you don't want people to die. So that that's great. But wow, it, it's it's really something. Just the amount of time and so, and the yeah, disruption so, to like your daily so, life. It's unbelievable. So it really does become your life. Yeah. Um, and 
there are some people who really manage to lead their best life mm -hmm. possible still. Um, people do it, do even hemodialysis at home, uh, do it at night, uh, dialyze overnight and carry on with their, their lives. But, you know, it, it takes its toll. And it's it takes tremendous its toll on, 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 uh, It takes its toll mentally, but it also mm -hmm. takes its toll on the body. And so transplant, kidney transplant is actually life-saving because yes. if you look at outcomes for people who remain on dialysis versus people who get transplants, people with transplants live longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that just speaks to the, the significance of... Um, just like you, like you said, you, you give people their life back yeah. with a successful well, a health, transplant. A healthy kidney it's is amazing. Almost, uh, is is light years different from a dialysis machine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, we're doing okay for time. We yeah. got a little. I know you got uh, you're a popular guy today, but uh, so we we're doing okay. We got a few minutes here. Um, we mentioned it. We'll come. Uh, we'll come back to it now, which is. The relationship between the opiate crisis and organ transplantation in general. I was completely unaware of this till you mentioned it on our Zoom call or our phone call that we had. Uh, so just what is that? How, how does the opiate crisis uh, have an effect on organ transplantation? Well, unfortunately, it just creates many more people who could potentially be organ donors because when you overdose uh, you um, stop breathing uh, heart stops may or may not be resuscitated uh, to the point where the heart the heart is or get resuscitated to the point where the heart is beating but may have sustained such severe brain damage as to be neurologically dead or such severe brain damage to mean that there is going to be no hope of a meaningful recovery. Uh, and so those are people who could be good kidney donors uh, or and, and uh, you know, multi-organ donors. I'm not, not just talking about kidneys, hearts, lungs, livers, and pancreas. Um, and so uh, it's just created a much increased number because of the number of overdoses. And I'm not talking about people who are chronically ill, who are necessarily, you know, not, not, not people who are living with hepatitis C, HIV, mm -hmm. um, you know, have had endocarditis from, you know, long years of, uh, of, uh, of drug use. But, you know, somebody who's just had an accidental overdose, there's fentanyl in, in the drug supply. Um, kids, you know, 16, 18, 20, uh, you know, party and they're whatever, oftentimes cocaine's laced with uh, fentanyl. Uh, they had no idea, they've never even used fentanyl, they've never used that drug even before, and they die. And, uh, but they're healthy and they're perfect organ donors and the number is tragic but it, it's, it's led to a, a significant increase in our organ donor pool and so our organ donor rate in BC has gone from you know when I was talking about the the old days eight per million population to over 30 million population um, 
you know, many things leading to it, but the last big jump since the opioid crisis. That's a crazy jump, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's significant when you think about it like that, right? Yeah. Wow. And, and for people who, because I would kind of, as someone who has no medical training at all, um, so very, very much a lay person in that regard, um, my knee-jerk reaction or my knee-jerk thought would be um, for someone who ODs, like, they would not be, like, aren't they kind of like an unhealthy person? Like, that they wouldn't be, that their organs wouldn't even be viable for so said transplant? So, uh, no, uh, no disrespect, but let's say tonight... <laughs> Tonight you went to a party, and uh, maybe your friend said, "Hey, you made some bad choices." Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, made a bad choice. You'd be the best organ donor ever, right? And these are the people I'm talking. About. I am in good shape. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, these are the people I'm talking about. Now, um, if you were to become an organ donor because you, let's say, you injected. Mm -hmm. um, then there's a risk of hepatitis C, HIV. We can test, but that can be tested. We can That's test right. for yeah. that, right? And so, but you, you know, the, the likeliest risk is hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. There's good treatment for hepatitis C. Uh, we actually will transplant a kidney from a donor who has hepatitis C on purpose, with the consent of the recipient and start them on hepatitis C antiviral drugs at the time, and you only need to take these drugs for 12 weeks. That's and, incredible, and, isn't and, it? Uh, and to great outcomes. Yeah. So that's another innovative thing that we've done in order to improve the donor rate. And because we were using these, but you know, again, there's a there's very informed consent. And of course, yeah. And, and with um, hepatitis C in particular, that's very new, relatively speaking with the treatment that you can... Yes, the, the, the new treatments for hepatitis C are revolutionary, but yeah. they, they've only, yeah, I, my sense of timing is a bit off, but they're not as new as, <laughs> as I think they are anymore, but probably six, seven, six, seven years. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, yeah. in the grand scheme, that's a yeah, blink before, of an eye, be, really. Before, before it was a non-starter. Yeah, of course, sure. yeah. So that, that in itself is quite something where you go, yeah, just as you said, you go from something that's just... It's a non-starter. It's just this is not going to happen. And yeah. you go, okay, consent, sign here, sign here, and let's get you on the treatment. Let's get you, yeah. let's get you healthy. Yeah, yeah, that's quite something. Yeah, I know that that is the, and again, like that underlying ethical concern for organ donation, and uh, you know, from particularly from deceased, as we as we mentioned, that shift from what's the best outcome from a r tragic situation? Um, and so now with the number of overdose deaths and the drug supply is, you know, it's, it's, with fentanyl, it's, it's crazy. It's a really strange time in many ways with that. Um, but the fact that now, okay, so despite um, people dying and people overdosing is bad. That's not a good thing. Um, but the fact that you can have some type of positive outcome out of an otherwise tragic situation is very, that's very optimistic. That's really great to see that you can have this positive effect on people's lives. And the fact that you've been a part of establishing an infrastructure and research that allows for 
Like, can you imagine 40 years ago when you first started your career? No. Right? That's the thing. It must be yeah. Un, yeah. unfathomable. So I'm not sure I feel good about that. Like, the fact that it's the opioid crisis is hard to feel good about it. But what I do feel good about is I think we've now put in such a good infrastructure into the intensive care units when the number of opioid-related deaths goes down. Uh, we will, we will still have the the whole infrastructure there, and I'm hopeful that the the, the donor numbers will pick up from you know from from identifying even more donors who got there in other pathways, and so uh, uh, I think the the opioid crisis has trained us to be very efficient. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm. But if we didn't have that, that that as the source, I'm optimistic that we will still continue, and I will look forward to that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, that's kind of you got somewhere to be. Um, so we'll uh, we're we're actually pr pretty okay. spot on for time. Uh, just in closing here, um, any closing remarks or just kind of final thoughts for the listeners? Um, so, uh, a personal, uh, a personal note, uh, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about my career, um, which I've derived a bit satisfaction from, um, but I'm not the person who has been totally fixated on their career, um, as the only important part of my life. And uh, my family has been incredibly important to me as well. And I believe, despite the crazy hours that I've put in <laughs> and everything, I believe that I actually have uh, developed good balance. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. <laughs> and um, I've learned how to look after myself. Uh, and have compassion for myself and to uh, keep my mental and physical health as, as good as I can, uh, you know, with a, whatever control that I have, which isn't much, and, but doing the things that I can do. And uh, um, I've just had uh, an amazingly uh, supportive uh, wife and two daughters and uh, we've had, uh, our family has been blessed and that's uh, an equally important part of my life. Wonderful. So with that, thank you very much, Dr. David Landsberg. Appreciate it. My pleasure.